You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Calamities so extensive would have been in our most prosperous times productive of severe distress. But on retrospecting to our situation for the last three years, during which period we have alternately suffered by fire, by famine, by lawless outrage, and numerous mercantile failures, which have greatly injured the commercial reputation of the town, the recent conflagrations seemed only wanting to consummate our misfortunes. Several hundred men in the prime of life without money or means of being employed, without adequate clothing or food, are at the hour of midnight wandering amidst the smoking ruins to seek warmth from the ashes and food from the refuse of the half-consumed fish. Within these two days, two men have been found perished of cold, and many hundreds must inevitably experience a similar fate if humanity does not promptly and effectually step forward to their relief. The Grand Jury of St. John's, Newfoundland, November 1817. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 44, The Fires of St. John's On February 12, 1816, a fire broke out near a place called King's Beach in the coastal city of St. John's, Newfoundland, in Canada. No one is sure how the fire started, but it spread quickly along the waterfront and the piers and warehouses where fish was processed. 
fishing and sealing being overwhelmingly the main economic activity of St. John's. And by the time the flames were out, 120 houses were in ashes, as well as two printing presses and a Methodist chapel. The damage was estimated at 100,000 pounds sterling, a fortune by the standard of the second decade, and an economic hit that the town of St. John's, which teetered eternally on the edge of poverty, simply couldn't recoup. If this was all there was to the story, with all due respect to the victims of the fire, this wouldn't be worthy of an episode of this show. But this isn't all there was to the story. It was only the beginning. For the next three years, between the winter of 1816 and the summer of 1819, St. John's would burn again no less than five times, indicating something was seriously wrong, or the citizens of Newfoundland's largest city were serially unlucky, or both. In fact, the fires of St. John's are really only the tip of the iceberg. The next terrible fall and winter, late 1817 to the first months of 1818, went down in the history of the city as the winter of the Rowls. Rowls apparently means rowdies or civil unrest, and the fire was only the catalyst of the troubles. Starvation, crime, riots, economic collapse, political and ethnic unrest, all of these factors exploded into one perfect storm, and together they made St. John's possibly the most miserable city to live in in the entire English-speaking world at the end of the second decade. The story of what happened in and to the town of St. John's at the end of the 18-teens is perhaps kind of an unusual one for this show, and not just because Canadian history tends to be overlooked. There really are no heroes in this story, not even really Vice Admiral Francis Pickmore, the Royal Navy Governor of Newfoundland, we'll talk about him in due course, but there are really no villains either. The story of the fires is really a means of examining what life was like in some very marginal places in the 18-teens. On this show, I've done a lot of what you might call big history. Napoleon, wars, battles, volcanoes, presidents, the sort of thing you often see in history books or on history podcasts. But I also like to do small history, the things that rarely make it into history books or onto shows like this. A recent example was the episode I did on Karagea's Plague, which was so obscure that I had to really scramble to find sources. There's more than that written on the history of Newfoundland and St. John's, but all of it paints a picture of a settlement that probably shouldn't have been able to exist. Far from self-sufficient, an outpost of humanity stranded on the fringe of an island that was too far away from everything, and vulnerable to just about every kind of hardship that coastal communities had to deal with, but somehow even more so. This kind of history makes you admire how the people of St. John's managed to stay alive and keep their community together through so many challenges. This is very much the story of a frontier town, but one up in the icy north instead of the dusty west. And instead of Indian attacks, the scourge of this frontier town was definitely fire, an enemy that kept advancing on them time and time again like a relentless army laying siege. So join me now as we hit the bricks and planks of the blackened streets of Newfoundland's amazing and unfortunate capital and investigate the fires of St. John's. Good evening. As usual, I have a couple of quick announcements and updates before we get into the substance of the episode. First, book announcements. I have got not one, not two, but three books currently in the works. The one probably of most interest to listeners of this show is the Second Decade book, titled Second Decade, The Long Dawn of the 19th Century, 
which is based on the scripts of several of the first season episodes. As you know, this book has been in the works for a long time. I have returned to it, and it is coming, hopefully later this summer. This will be my first history book, and if you've enjoyed the show so far, I think you'll like the book. The second book I'm working on, and almost finished with, is another non-fiction book which is called The Warmest Tide, How Climate Change is Changing History. The title is pretty self-explanatory. It is about climate change, but unlike most authors who write about climate change and who focus either on science or policy, I come at it from a historical perspective. The potential of climate change as a driver of large societal-level transformation in our society and our history. This book is coming at exactly the right time as many people around the world are finally realizing that climate change is the world's biggest problem, and it will leave almost nothing in our global society unaltered. So anyway, that's coming. The third book that's in the works is a novel, historical fiction, and it's called Eyes of War, and I co-wrote it with Lucas Erickson, a historian of the Pacific War. The novel is about a phenomenon of World War II in the Pacific that is seldom written about or acknowledged the practice of taking human trophies, like skulls and teeth, and what those trophies mean. The book is two intertwining stories, one about a U.S. soldier who picks up a human skull on a beach after the Battle of Okinawa in 1945, and the story of the Japanese woman whose skull that was, and how she came to be on that beach. And these stories are based very heavily on real events. It's a grisly subject, and let me tell you, Eyes of War is not for everyone, But the book tells a vitally important story, and it may change how you look at World War II in the Pacific. My guess on the release date is late August or September, but I'll let you know more definitively as we get the book into production. Finally, I'll say a few words about the future of this podcast. For the past two years on this show, I've taken the summers off, and my seasons usually end in June or July, and I don't pick back up again with recording episodes until September or October. I've decided that I'm not going to do that this year. We're technically still in Season 3, but there was a long, unplanned hiatus in the winter, mainly because of my health and other pressures. Remember, I do this show absolutely alone, so if I can't work on it, nothing gets done. I do want to continue to make more episodes, but my pace has been slower, so I will continue working over the next few months. Part and parcel of that, however, is I'm considering changing up a bit and occasionally going outside the parameters of the second decade now and again. For example, I'm giving some thought to doing a mini-series, or maybe three or four episodes in a row, on events from another decade, maybe the 1840s, and then returning to the 18-teens, our normal format, and then maybe venturing out again to another period. Anyway, that's the thought. Nothing is set in stone yet. In any event, the good news is that second decade is continuing, and we're in a very long season three. So now let's turn our attention to St. John's, Newfoundland. Let's put a human face on our story, and then I'll go back in and fill in some of the details, setting the stage for our fiery climax. On May 18, 1816, somewhere within the bureaucratic machinery of Britain's Royal Navy, which was one of the most Byzantine bureaucracies in the world at that time, a paper got signed appointing one Vice Admiral Francis Pickmore as Royal Governor of the Colony of Newfoundland. We know surprisingly little about the circumstances of Pickmore's ascension to the role of royal governor, and Pickmore himself is a figure defined almost entirely by official paper, specifically his record as an officer in His Majesty's Navy. Wherever he was in May, Britain presumably, it took Pickmore a long time to make it to St. John's to accept his commission. He didn't arrive in the city until September 5th, and what he found was an utter mess. The city had barely recovered from the February fire, 
the fisheries had a very poor season, which meant St. John's would be lean and hungry for the upcoming winter. Lawlessness was endemic, and it was about to get worse. As we'll see, Pickmore seemed like a capable and conscientious enough man, but it's hard not to conclude that he was a bit out of his depth. He wasn't skilled at humanitarian missions or civil authority. He was a fighting sailor. He joined the Royal Navy in 1777 as a lieutenant, sorry, they pronounce it Luftenant at that time, and he worked his way up through the ranks in your classic Horatio Hornblower sense. The Napoleonic Wars gave Pickmore his chance to shine as a naval officer. In 1806, a vessel under his command took a French ship called the Marengo as a prize of war, and he was also sent to capture the Danish West Indies. I didn't know there were any Danish West Indies, but there you go. The Admiralty certainly liked the cut of Pickmore's jib, promoting him to Rear Admiral in 1808 and Vice Admiral in 1812. During this time, Pickmore served in several missions under the command of Rear Admiral and later Vice Admiral Richard Goodwin Keats, who also mixed it up with the Danes during the Napoleonic Wars. Denmark, incidentally, was sort of a nominal ally of Napoleon, largely forced to take his side because the British knocked out the Danish fleet in 1807 to prevent the French from capturing it and using it against them. Talk about making unnecessary enemies. Anyway, the cozy closeness of Pickmore and Keats is relevant to the history of Newfoundland. In 1813, after resigning his active command for health reasons, Keats was appointed governor of Newfoundland. While I couldn't find specific mention the sources of Keats recommending Pickmore as his successor, that's probably what happened. There's more to say about Keats's term as governor of Newfoundland, but we'll get to that. And if you're wondering who was actually in charge during the four months Pickmore took in reaching St. John's, we have to turn to another Royal Navy officer, Commander David Buchan, who, in the absence of a real governor, had been holding St. John's together for the previous harsh winter. We'll get to that too. But we have to go back and cover some more basic ground first. What was St. John's? How did it get there? And what kind of mess were these Royal Navy officers being asked to preside over? St. John's is one of the oldest European communities in North America. There's talk of the Vikings having visited the area around the year 1000, when Leif Erikson made his famous foray from Greenland. The saga of Eric the Red, one of the most interesting medieval texts, is the epic story of this voyage and the foundation of the short-lived colony of Vinland. We're not precisely sure where Vinland was, nor can we be sure about exactly what happened at the dawn of the 11th century, when the Norse made their brief incursion into North America. The natives of Newfoundland, who'd been there for thousands of years, were none too keen on the strange invaders from across the sea. The Vikings' relations with the natives were decidedly frosty, and it's one of the reasons the Norse didn't stay permanently on Newfoundland. The traditional story is that Venetian explorer John Cabot sailed into the harbor that is now St. John's on June 24, 1547, which is the feast day of St. John the Baptist, hence the name. However, it appears unlikely that Cabot really was the first European, or the second if you count Leif Erikson and his crew. The cold waters off Newfoundland teem with fish, and it was obvious this area had significant economic utility as a fishery. It's likely that Spanish and Portuguese fishermen established seasonal fish camps at what's now St. John's even earlier than 1547, and the name St. John's may have been conferred not by Cabot, but by Basque fishermen, who were beginning to make annual migrations across the Atlantic to harvest the fish. From the very beginning, St. John's lifeblood was fish and fishing, and also sealing. The fish business, as it was practiced in medieval Europe and into colonial times in North America, was a pretty large-scale operation. 
It wasn't just catching fish and hauling them into port. The catch had to be preserved, whether by drying the fish on a frame or salting it, which required elaborate operations to cook seawater down to salt, and the establishment of salting camps, usually on beaches. This subject came up on my off-topic episode last summer on the rather ridiculous legend of buried treasure on Oak Island, Nova Scotia, where the remnants of just such a salt camp have in modern times been mistaken for some sort of treasure-burying operation. We don't need to get into why there's no treasure there, despite the claims of a very irresponsible History Channel show that's particularly allergic to actual historical fact. Anyway, suffice it to say that St. John's was, for Europeans and even for the indigenous inhabitants, all about fishing. As a fishing community, everybody who came to St. John's came by sea. Newfoundland is an island, and for that reason it was even more detached from the rest of the British colonies in North America. From the very beginning, St. John's was the remotest European outpost on an already remote shore. By the 1620s, the fishers who visited the area seasonally were overwhelmingly English, most from the west country of England, and Britain's attempts to colonize Newfoundland coincided with the English large-scale settlement projects farther south, at Plymouth, for example, and at Jamestown on the Virginia coast. Until the 1620s, the British crown expressly forbade any year-round presence at Newfoundland, so we're still talking exclusively about seasonal fishing camps. But at some point, we're not sure because the records are sketchy, year-round settlement by Europeans got started, with a handful of hardscrabble plantations, as they were called. By the 18th century, Newfoundland was thoroughly British, and it began to take on strategic importance, especially as Britain came into conflict with France over various possessions in North America. I'm going to skip over that story, except to mention that St. John's was the site of the final battle of the French and Indian War, the Battle of Signal Hill, in September 1762. After peace was concluded between Britain and France in 1763, and France kicked out of North America, Newfoundland's history becomes increasingly dominated by the growing split between Britain and her rebellious colonies further south. But that wasn't the only factor at play in St. John's. Ethnic and religious tensions were growing too. By the mid-18th century, large numbers of the men who worked of the St. John's fisheries and the families who lived in the colony were Irish, the Irish being for many centuries a source of cheap labor for the use of British capital. And after 1763, there were still many people of French descent there, even if France had no more political stake in Canada. The French and Irish were traditionally Catholic. The English tended to be Protestants, obviously a source of tension. The American Revolution, which began in 1775, was to a large extent a civil war within Britain's North American colonies. Communities up and down the entire coast of the continent were divided between loyalists who favored remaining under the British crown and revolutionaries who wanted to break away from it. As the war dragged on, increasing numbers of loyalists who were driven out of areas controlled by revolutionaries settled in the northern colonies, including Newfoundland. Canada would remain British. There was really no question of these colonies joining the revolutionary cause. The British kept particularly tight control of the St. John's fisheries, issuing a decree in 1776 that closed participation in the fisheries to all but ships and crews from England or Ireland. Part of the reason for this was that the fisheries were a good source of trained mariners who could be put into the Royal Navy. St. John's was, for King George, a human resources department, as well as Britain's most important fish market. When the Brits decided to pull the plug on the Revolutionary War in 1782, largely for political, not military reasons, 
The issue of access to the fisheries of Newfoundland was a huge one at the peace table in Paris. In fact, American access to Canadian fisheries remained one of the most important issues not just at the end of the Revolution, but continually and well into the second decade. The American Revolution had separated Britain and the United States messily and incompletely. That there would eventually be another war to resolve some of these issues was almost inevitable, but still a really terrible idea. Here we can act up with the previous miniseries done on Second Decade, the story of the long and tragic run-up to the War of 1812. The War of 1812 was actually pretty good for St. John's. It supplied fish and oil to British forces working from Canada, and as the Brits had to haul just about everything else they needed across the ocean, having the outpost of Newfoundland was pretty convenient for them. Wages in the city were very high during the war. Business was booming. The British understood the strategic importance of St. John's. At the beginning of the war, they had three ships of the line, 21 frigates, and 37 other naval vessels that called St. John's their home port. During the war, 30 American ships were brought into St. John's as prizes, and there was even a firm called Hunt, Stab, Preston & Company, headquartered on the waterfront, that served as the prize agents who processed and sold the valuables captured from American ships. These guys got so rich that they would spend their spare time shooting at empty champagne bottles on the wharf and wagering on the outcome. But as good as things were during the war years, St. John's at the beginning of the second decade was far from self-sufficient. Indeed, the other British colonies still remaining in North America, meaning other parts of Canada, shipped food, supplies, and materials to St. John's in absolutely vast quantities. In 1813, for example, St. John's imported 1,400 sheep, 1,400 oxen, 2.25 million board feet of lumber, and an astonishing 426,000 gallons of liquor, which didn't count the French brandy and wine taken from captured American ships, most of which was sold by the prize agents to the local inhabitants. There was a lot of drinking going on in St. John's during the War of 1812. There was also a lot of civil unrest and crime. As was pretty common in 19th century cities, criminal gangs were rampant. In St. John's, most of them were Irish. The Tipperary Clear Airs, the Waterford Way Bellies, and the Cork Daydeans often brawled in the streets, with the Kilkenny Dunes and the Wexford Yellow Bellies. The nomenclature of 19th century street gangs is a bizarre subject to delve into, let me tell you. St. John's was nothing less than a frontier boomtown. And like a town in the American Wild West later in the century, St. John's was a wild, raucous, and sometimes lawless place, its economy built on fish rather than mining or ranching. The civil authorities were barely in control. The British Royal Navy governors didn't even live in the town year-round. Richard Goodwin Keats and the previous governors all stayed in St. John's only during the warm weather months when the fishing season was on. They wintered elsewhere. Their job was to keep enough of a lid on St. John's to ensure that the salted fish, barrels of fish oil, and sealskins kept shipping out, and the food, animals, lumber, and booze needed to sustain the employees of the fisheries kept shipping in to keep the enterprise going. St. John's was perched precariously on the edge of an economic bubble, and in early 1815, the bubble popped. Two specific events caused St. John's economy to crash in the first months of 1815, the first was, at least for the people of Newfoundland, the unwelcome news that peace had broken out between Great Britain and the United States. The Treaty of Ghent, which I dealt with in a previous episode, brought an end to the military conflict, but that meant that Canadian ports were again open to American and other merchants. The fish market was suddenly flooded with American and Norwegian imports. 
The fish catch of the 1815 season wasn't so bad, but with the market glutted, prices cratered, which meant economic depression for St. John's. Things were made even worse by the permanent end of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. Now St. John's best customer, the Royal Navy, was in belt-tightening mode. With Bonaparte cooling his heels on the desolate island of St. Helena, the Royal Navy no longer needed the vast quantities of fish and oil that they'd imported during the war. The other event that sent St. John's into a tailspin was something else we keep returning to on this show, the eruption of Mount Tambora in the Dutch East Indies in April 1815, and the subsequent climate change and weather anomalies that it caused. Harvests in North America declined in 1815 and especially 1816. The temporary climate change subtly altered the temperature of the waters off Newfoundland, which meant the fish and seal catches were negatively affected. Wages fell, credit dried up, firms began to close their doors. Here's an excerpt from a letter by Captain David Buchan, second-in-command of the colony of Newfoundland, to his boss, Richard Goodwin Keats, who was on his way out the door at the end of 1815. Quote, In November 1815, there have been upwards of 700 writs issued since the closing of accounts in October, and 40 declarations of insolvency. Notwithstanding which, we are happy to inform your excellency that the public peace has not in any material degree been interrupted nor do we perceive the smallest ground of apprehension of any charge of sentiment likely to disturb the present tranquility, end quote. Buchan was too optimistic. Something was about to disturb the present tranquility. Fire. When the first of the terrible conflagrations that raked St. John's in the second decade burned through the heart of the city in February 1816, it might have seemed like the city's fortunes had reached their lowest point. They hadn't. The ordeal by fire was only beginning. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud, Stories like these, fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. The fire of February 1816 struck St. John's at precisely the wrong time. The credit crunch, the unequal distribution of food and provisions, and the growing population pressures meant that many citizens of St. John's were literally on the edge of starvation. Winter was a dangerous time in Newfoundland even when things were good because when the ice choked up the harbor, communication with any other part of British America was usually impossible. During this winter, remember the royal governors did not stay in the city except in the summer months, St. John's was largely under the control of Captain David Buchan, whose headquarters was aboard his ship, the HMS Pike. Buchan did what he could to redistribute food and prevent looting, but that winter was very trying. 
It was even more so because the population of St. John's had swelled. In 1814 and 1815, over 11,000 Irish immigrants came to St. John's, fleeing poor conditions and perennial famine in Ireland. The city was virtually overwhelmed. Now in 1816, after the first fire, these people, who expected to have stable jobs in the fishing industry, were destitute. The only ray of light was literally charity. After hearing of the fire and its devastation, a bunch of citizens of Boston took up a collection and arranged for a shipment of grain to be made northward to Newfoundland, when shipping conditions were better, of course. The irony was that a year before, Americans and Canadians were essentially at war, but now St. John's depended on the charity of Bostonians for much of its sustenance. There's an irony to this because, looking at the sources, it's tempting to jump to the conclusion that food was in short supply in St. John's. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't poverty in the sense that the city lacked provisions, but it was deprivation, meaning what food there was didn't get to the people who needed it the most. Indeed, through the worst of the harsh winters, the Royal Gazette, St. John's local newspaper, ran ads in almost every issue for bread, flour, molasses, salt, beef, bacon, oatmeal, pork, rum, and all kinds of other foodstuffs. So you could eat in St. John's even in the depth of these terrible winters, if you had the money. Unfortunately, the situation didn't get much better the following fishing season. The spring and summer months of 1816 in North America were marked by the weather and climate anomalies of the year without summer, a result of the Tambora and Mountain X eruptions. I've mentioned that many times now on this show. St. John's' economy was so precarious that even a little environmental stress made a huge difference. In addition to fish, St. John's depended on seals for part of its economic livelihood. Sealing has made its appearance a couple of times on this podcast, most notably in episode 5 about Captain Charles Bernard, and then episode 40 on Antarctica. The seal harvest in the waters around Newfoundland was particularly bad in the summer of 1817. So, the situation facing the new governor, Francis Pickmore, at the end of the summer 1817 season was pretty desperate. The population of the city was now nearly 70,000, many of them unemployed Irish laborers whose presence was deeply resented by British-born settlers. The fish and seal economies were depressed. Coming winter was bound to be severe due to the effects of temporary climate change. The Royal Navy, recognizing that the system of ad hoc governance they'd used before just couldn't cut it anymore, ordered Pickmore to stay in St. John's over the winter, the first time a Newfoundland governor would do that. He arrived back in the city on September 30, 1817. Arriving at the governor's residence at Fort Townsend, which was intended for summer occupancy only, Pickmore found that the place had been damaged by snow and ice that had accumulated over the previous winter. It was almost uninhabitable. Pickmore wrote to the colonial secretary, Lord Bathurst, he's appeared on this show before, begging for more money so he could rent a more suitable residence, but London refused. Pickmore would have to do his best in the drafty, cold, and damp surroundings, which turned out to be a fateful turn of events for him. At the beginning of November 1817, a hard frost struck. 1817 was an even harder and colder winter than the previous one, and the freezing temperatures locked up the entire Newfoundland coast, effectively preventing anyone from entering or leaving the city. Just a few days later, on November 7, 1817, a fire broke out in a house adjoining Water Street, very close to where the 1816 fire had begun. It was about 10 o'clock in the evening. In the dry and cold conditions, and particularly given the construction of St. John's narrow streets with overhanging wooden buildings, the fire spread rapidly, consuming house after house. The Royal Gazette later described it, quote, 
in the center of town between two streets not exceeding twenty feet in width. All exertion was unavailing to stem the current of conflagration. The flames spread in every direction with the rapidity of lightning. End quote. The fire raged along both sides of Water Street, which was then the main drag of St. John's. It destroyed businesses, warehouses, piers, and 130 houses. British Army and Navy personnel fanned out as the fire crept eastward. Firefighting equipment was almost non-existent. These were the days when hand crank spouts and leather buckets were state-of-the-art, so the main tactic in battling urban fires was to create fire breaks. On the north side of the city, the military men started pulling down buildings in the path of the fire. It was a desperate tactic, but it worked. The fire was limited mostly to the commercial and waterfront areas of the city, and the makeshift fire breaks prevented it from moving northward into the more purely residential areas. Amazingly, no one was killed, but over $2.5 million of damage had been done. The Royal Gazette wrote, When the morning dawned, such a scene of desolation presented itself as perhaps very few of the spectators ever before witnessed, and such as we sincerely hope they may never behold again. End quote. The destruction immediately sharpened the class, ethnic, and political tensions within the city. There was a sense that the fire and the public's reaction to it fell into two categories, that of the, quote, more respectable part of the community, that's again from the Royal Gazette, and the riffraff, which inevitably meant the Irish Catholic immigrants, who were thought to be a danger to public safety from looting the ruins. Immediately after the fire, Governor Pickmore made two proclamations. The first called for anyone who salvaged property from the smoldering ruins to bring it to a public place so its rightful owners could claim it, clearly an anti-looting measure. The second proclamation prohibited the export of any provisions that could be of practical use to the population. That was almost unnecessary, since St. John's was largely icebound, likely for the whole winter, it was difficult for ships to leave the harbor. Just two weeks later, early on the morning of November 21, 1817, a man aboard one of the Royal Navy ships bottled up in the frozen harbor spotted flames somewhere along the shore. Fire had broken out near the junction of Water Street and Adelaide Street at the premises of a firm called Hugh and Reed, which dealt in dry goods. The warehouse went up like a Roman candle, and the fire quickly engulfed what was left of Water Street that hadn't been burnt down two weeks previously. The second fire of November 1817 was worse than the first one. This time the flames were incapable of being controlled. Where the residential area had been saved in the previous blazes, on November 21st it wasn't so lucky, and fire jumped to the houses of the residential section, burning down 300 of them. Roofs and rafters collapsed into sparking ruins, and people, many of them Irish, ran screaming into the narrow streets. It was nature, not the effects of human beings, that ultimately put out the fire. Sometime during the night the wind shifted and the fire died down before it consumed what was left of the city. Notably, two warehouses, one owned by the firm of Perkins and Winter, the other Trimmingham and Company, survived both blazes. But a significant portion of St. John's was now a smoldering ruin. As many as 3,000 people were homeless, picking through the embers looking mostly for something to eat. The threat of looting now became real. There undoubtedly was significant looting and violence in the days and weeks following the two fires, and settlers founded vigilance committees, essentially vigilante posses, in every inhabited district. Pickmore and his deputy, Captain Buchan, did their best to keep order, but there are reports of ships being attacked, particularly by mobs of Irish immigrants, to get at the provisions supposedly aboard them. The looting and violence inevitably took on class and ethnic dimensions. 
I keep mentioning the Irish immigrants because they appear to have been blamed for just about everything that ever went wrong in St. John's. Irish immigration to British North America, and also to the United States, was an explosive factor. In 1798, there was a major uprising of Catholic Irish against Protestant English landowners in Ireland, led by a group called the Society of United Irishmen, a group animated by the liberal spirits of the American and French revolutions. The British put down the 1798 uprising basically by hosing down the streets with blood. I'm speaking figuratively there, but it's true as many as 50,000 people may have been killed in what was undoubtedly a sectarian civil war. The revolt drove a wave of Irish immigration to the New World. Many of the Irish immigrants in the United States who were fiercely anti-British jumped at the chance to take up arms against the Brits in the War of 1812. That was a factor in the episode I did on the Queenston 23 at the beginning of Season 2. By the second decade, Ireland was really in bad shape. Famine was extremely common in Ireland in these years. I myself read a diary of a farmer from Armagh from 1817 where he describes cows literally dropping dead in the fields and villages being wiped out from hunger, very much like the much more high-profile Irish potato famine of the 1840s, 30 years later. Suffice it to say, Irish were leaving the home island in droves, and Newfoundland was just one of the places they wound up. The same tensions that generated conflict between Irish and English on the other side of the Atlantic, class differences, religious differences, political resentments, manifested themselves in America and Canada too, only these tensions tended to play out in small, densely packed urban areas, which are where most of the Irish settled. In the case of the St. John's fires of 1817, it was almost inevitable that people would suspect the fires had somehow come out of this disaffected Irish underclass, never mind the theory of deliberate arson not making any real sense. On November 25, 1817, four days after the second fire, an editorial appeared in the Royal Gazette that said, quote, it is perhaps needless to inform our readers that various conjectures have been entertained relative to the cause of the last fire. The public mind has certainly been full of anxiety on the subject. In the minds of many persons, perhaps the unpleasant suspicion that the dreadful cause of our late alarm was the result of design. End quote. Governor Pickmore issued a bounty proclamation. It read, quote, 300 pounds is offered as a reward to be paid to any person or persons who shall discover and bring to conviction any offender or offenders, having maliciously set fire to, or been accessory to the malicious setting fire, to any house or houses in this town. End quote. Apparently this bounty was never paid. There's actually no evidence that the fires were arson. Pickmore himself was overworked. Sometime that winter he caught a bronchial infection, probably as a result of living and sleeping in the drafty quarters at Fort Townsend that he'd complained to the colonial secretary about. As conditions worsened over the winter, so did Pickmore's health. On February 24, 1818, Francis Pickmore died. His funeral was the occasion of an uncommon coming together of the people of St. John's, most of whom seemed to have liked and respected him. The harbor was still frozen, and the entire crew of the ship HMS Fly, assisted by a number of civilians, hacked at the ice for two weeks to form a channel whereby the ship carrying Pickmore's body could get out of the harbor and transport him back home to England. To survive the long voyage, Pickmore was embalmed in rum, but that smelled good. Ultimately, he was returned to England and buried, presumably in his hometown, though we don't know exactly where that was. As I said earlier, the only records of Francis Pickmore are official Navy papers. Pickmore was succeeded as acting royal governor by the commander of his flagship, the HMS Francis Drake, 
a fellow by the name of John Bowker. Francis Pickmore was the first Newfoundland governor to die in office, and it was mostly because he was the first to stay the winter, in the drafty and unhealthy confines of the summer-only governor's quarters at Fort Townsend. In the months following the two devastating fires, St. John's finally managed to catch a few breaks. The good citizens of Boston again coughed up some provisions. A Society for the Improvement of the Poor of St. John's sent a ship, the messenger, to the city, carrying 174 barrels of flour, 125 barrels of meal, 11 tierces of rice, what's a tierce, and 963 bags of bread. The provisions were received enthusiastically by the people of St. John's. Aid also came in from Halifax, and the British government sent 10,000 pounds. But what really turned the city's fortunes around was the seal harvest. The year 1817 had been the worst harvest on record, with only 37,000 seals caught in all of Newfoundland. That sounds like a lot, but apparently it wasn't. The next year, 1818, was much better. With at least a trickle of money coming in from seals in the fishery, the charity afforded both by Boston and the British government, and greater attention to solving St. John's problems by the local administration, the people were about to put the two terrible winters behind them and to try to move on to a more positive future. Yet there were still significant challenges. In September 1818, just two months after the arrival of the new royal governor, Charles Hamilton, another fire broke out in St. John's. This one was fortunately on a much smaller scale, burning only 12 houses, as opposed to the hundreds that had fallen in the 1816 and 1817 fires. Then, in 1819, the fifth major fire in a period of two and a half years raked the western part of the city. This one was probably comparable to the others, with damages estimated at 120 houses and 120,000 pounds sterling. I couldn't find any more specific details on the 1819 fire, even its specific date, but these two statistics do appear in each source I consulted. One of these sources, the 1896 book The History of Newfoundland by Judge D.W. Prowse, states, quote, There can be very little doubt that these fires were the work of incendiaries. But Prowse provides no documentation for that statement, and honestly, I'm not so sure I believe it. What is undoubted is that the city of St. John suffered at least five significant fires during the second decade, and they had a large hand in shaping the history and geography of the city. Much like London after the Great Fire of 1666, more prudent building and settlement patterns were instituted. After 1819, the city's two main streets that were the epicenters of the fires, Water Street and Duckworth Street, were both widened to 50 feet and built up with brick and stone, rather than wood. These improvements came about as a result of an order of Governor Hamilton, dated July 15, 1820. But this was hardly the end of St. John's experience with destructive fires. Another colossal blaze erupted on June 9, 1846, started from an overboiling glue pot in a shop in Hamilton Street. And the 19th century's final big fire, the one that is etched most delibly into St. John's collective consciousness, was the Great Fire of 1892, started by a man dropping a lit pipe. The histories of frontier towns, whether they're prairie or rangeland frontiers or maritime frontiers, are often shaped by disasters, and particularly by fires. Fire is an awesome force in history, and has become more so since more and more of the world's population has congregated in cities in the last 500 years. In a way that's different than the great city fires of history, like London in 1666, or Moscow in 1571 or 1812, the fires that ravaged St. John's in the second decade cast a unique light on the kind of social tensions at play in a frontier town besieged on all sides by environmental and geographical hardships. 
St. John's was a crucible in more ways than one. Ultimately, this story is less about fire and more about people, and how they deal not always prudently with disasters that take the shape of forces of nature, but which usually come down to, as it did in the case of St. John's, very human factors. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. I do not use Twitter anymore. Remember, I have books coming out, hopefully at the end of the summer. The Warmest Tide, How Climate Change is Changing History, and the World War II novel Eyes of War, co-written with Lucas Erickson. And I'm working on the book based on this podcast, Second Decade, The Long Dawn of the 19th Century. My historical sources for this episode include St. John, City of Fire by Paul Butler, Flanker Press, 2007, and A History of Newfoundland by D.W. Prowse, Iron and Spottiswood, London, 1896. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Hey, Drew Scott here. And I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.